scripture. 6 verses 5 to 15. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in synagogues or on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father, who is unseen. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts, also, as we also have forgiven our debtors, our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive others, other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Please be seated. George Mueller, in the 1800s, he founded over 100 schools and ran an orphanage. He began each day with several hours in prayer. Charles Simeon, who almost single-handedly restored evangelical preaching as a force in the local church, in the late 1700s, he got up at 4 o'clock in the morning and spent four hours in prayer. Lancelot Andrews, who oversaw the translation of the King James Bible in 1611, he spent five hours in praying every day. Martin Luther spent two hours every day in prayer. Jonathan Edwards would spend hours wrapped and swallowed up in God, he said. In 2015, Ken Vanemulen, pastor of Thornhill Baptist Church in Calgary, continues to struggle in prayers with periods of strength and periods of labor. In conversation with many leaders in the church, when I asked them, what can I pray for you? They routinely say, pray that I would make time in my world for scripture and for prayer. Prayer among evangelicals is at a relative minimum. If I asked, and don't put your hand up, if I asked, how many of you prayed for 10 minutes yesterday? I wonder how many would say yes. And maybe Simeon and Luther wrecked the curve and were abnormal even in their time. What is the difference between their life of prayer and ours? Most, if not all of us, would affirm that prayer is vital to faith, a faith that grows like a baby into adulthood. So why do we have such a hard time with it? And prayer is hard. It's hard on a lot of levels and for a lot of reasons. 
It's hard because of distractions in my racing thoughts. It's hard because there are spiritual forces that oppose our praying. It's hard because in prayer, we are communicating with a God we can't see or hear or touch. Like to use a biblical analogy, chasing the wind or holding oil with a hand or nailing jello to a tree. And it's hard, oh, that's not in Bible story. It's hard because, quite frankly, most of, us, most of us don't really understand it. Because, let's face it, prayer is a mystery. Like texting. We know that it works, that messages can move from phone to phone over great distances without being physically connected, but we don't understand it. We don't know how it works. We know, in theory at least, that prayer moves the hand of God, that he makes decisions based on the presence of prayer. But how does a God who, oh, how does God who knows at any point exactly what he will do suddenly change his mind? The Bible says in several instances that God relents because he is asked. Now, think of that. God has decided to act. He knows there will be prayer. And he knows he will not do what he has decided he will do. It's a mystery. And why does the God of love and power, who has committed himself to meeting our needs and knows our need, need to be asked? More than once. Does a sick person with many people praying for him have a better chance of being healed than someone who has one person or two people praying? And again, how long do we need to pray? Why should I pray for something I've been praying for all week or all year or for decades? And as I said last week, the prayers of each person matter to God and are able to move his hand. And yet there is an added dynamic to our praying together. So it's a mystery. When a doctoral student asked Albert Einstein what in the world is left on which to do original, original dissertation research, Einstein replied, find out about prayer. Somebody must find out about prayer. So prayer is hard to understand. It's hard to do. But we need to do it. And we're called to do it. Last week, the message was about corporate prayer. This week, I want to share some things about individual prayers. And specifically, the context for prayer. These do not have to do with how to pray, a pattern to follow, or how to make room in a schedule to pray. They are a preface to prayer, as it were. So four things to understand even before we pray, the context for prayer. First, prayer is fundamentally relational. It's relational. And I know we know that, but how often do most of us, myself included, treat God as if he were a secretary to a CEO of a big corporation? 
He steps in when we call him. We give him a to-do list. We send him out to do his work. Every once in a while, we praise him for doing a good job. Sometimes we mean it. Other times we wonder why it takes him so long to do certain tasks. And I know I'm oversimplifying, but am I? Think about your recent prayers. In terms of percent, how much of them are spent asking God to do things? Now, that does have to do with prayer. Friends ask favors of other friends. But it's more. It's love. And it's two-way. God loves us. He's not like a king who generically loves his people. The king doesn't love each person. He's not in relationship with each person. But God does love each one of us. Do we love him? Prayer is where two hearts meet. It's fundamentally relational. It's not magic. Prayer doesn't work as if it were about the prayers itself. Prayer touches the heart of God who works. Tim Stafford, in his book, Knowing the Face of God, writes this. Silently gazing into a friend's eyes may seem pure, and certainly more romantic than mere talk. But conversation, not silence, builds relationships. Though I will never minimize the effect of beautiful eyes, I expect to talk to the people I care about and to hear them talk every once in a while. Conversation between two friends is a constant stream. Now, I know that relating to God is very different from relating to a friend on a person-to-person level. Our conversation with him is not a constant stream. But as we talk to him and learn to listen to him, and it needs to be learned, this relationship grows. You want him to know what you're thinking, but in a relational prayer, a prayer that takes place in the context of relationship, you also want to know what he's thinking. And the purpose of prayer, after all, is not to get God to do things, but to cultivate a a heart for God, a love for God, and to receive his love for us. Also, James Smith, in his book, Imagining the Kingdom, likens relationship to God to sleep. He says, I cannot choose to fall asleep. The best I can choose is to put myself in a posture and a rhythm that welcomes sleep. I lay down in bed on my left side with my knees drawn up. I close my eyes and breathe slowly, putting my plans out of my mind. But the power of my will or consciousness stops there. I want to go to sleep. I've chosen to climb into bed, but in another sense, sleep is not something under my control or at my beck and call. I call up the visitation of sleep by imitating the breathing and posture of a sleeper. There is a moment when sleep comes, settling on this imitation of itself, which I have been offering to it, and I succeed in becoming what I was trying to be. Sleep is a gift to be received, not a decision to be made. 
And yet it is a gift that requires a posture of reception, a kind of active welcome. That's great. In prayer, we open ourselves up to a posture of relationship with God. I said last week that Jesus prayed. Do you pray to get instructions of God dictated to him or to ask this or that favor? Did he pray as an example to us? I think he prayed to sustain the relationship. I think prayer is where his heart and God's heart, the Father's heart, touched. Prayer is not about getting God to do things. Some years ago, I got a phone call from Arnie. Arnie was a guy I had met at a friend's wedding. He called me up and said, I came across your name in my files and thought, hey, I haven't seen Ken in a while. Can I take you to lunch? And I said, sure. I'm Dutch, and hey, free lunch. But it only took a couple of minutes before he started introducing me to his Spearman Scales scheme. He connected with me, not because he wanted relationship with me, not because he cared about me, but because he wanted me to sign up and help him make money. We don't take God out to lunch saying, hey, I just wanted to connect with you but all the while with an agenda to get him to do what we want. Prayer is where our heart and God's heart are in touch. Prayer is above all relational. Secondly, prayer takes trust. It takes trust. I went to see Carl Purser this week and prayed for him and prayed for his healing. He's almost 80, has dialysis every day. But he says, I've been sick for 25 years, but God does what he wants, and that's okay. Others fail a job interview, or a move falls through, or perhaps you have a loved one who gets sick and maybe even dies. And you hate that, but you say, God knows best. Jesus said upon his death, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But he also said, into your hands I commit my spirit. That's trust in personal situations. But prayer takes an extraordinary amount of trust. I'm reading a biography of Hitler these days. And under his regime, millions of people, Jews, handicapped men, women, were eliminated, many in concentration camps. Now, how many of those you think prayed for release and didn't get it? In Dresden and Hamburg, during the firestorms created by Allied bombings in which 70,000 people or more died, how many of those people prayed? In 9-11, how many of those in the Twin Towers prayed for their lives to be spared? How many in Rwanda prayed? How many in China? How many people are praying for the unborn? Do we pray knowing or at least believing that God is moving his kingdom forward and acting as he does so in the best 
interest of his children. Can God be trusted in even situations like that? Trusting that somehow at the end of the day, God has done right. Prayer takes an extraordinary amount of trust. Prayer is not telling God what to do. It's telling him, here's what I'm thinking, here's what I'm feeling, and even this is what's breaking my heart, and then leaving it up to him because we know he's trustworthy. And that happens in a relationship with God. So prayer takes an enormous amount of trust. It takes trust not to say, why me? Now, please don't hear me say that you aren't allowed to have an outburst against God. You can beat on his chest and say, why are are you so seemingly silent, so apathetic? You can say, why me? Or why do bad things happen to good people? The Bible is full of people who did exactly that. Why do the wicked prosper? And God can certainly handle it. But eventually God says, it's okay. Trust me. God loves like a parent. Sometimes our kids, whom we love more than they could ever know, will ask something like, can I bike to a certain place on my own? And we say, no, you can't. Or can I go on a date? And we say, maybe when you're not 14. Or can I borrow the car? And we say, maybe when you're not 14. Or for a child, when the needle hurts or a mouth needs to be frozen, maybe they don't, maybe they don't understand, but you wish they would just trust you. Or even as adults, when I experienced surgery or had to take a year off of work or take pills every day, do I trust the people around me? In your situation, do you trust the people around you? Do you trust God? It's good to enter prayer from a posture of trust, to know that whatever the answer, God has your best interest at heart. Think of a relationship with someone close to you, a simile, friend, spouse. Imagine that you don't necessarily trust them. How real, how relational will your communication be? In prayer, if you trust God, your communication with him will be more real, more relational. And sometimes an extraordinary amount of trust is needed. But God can be trusted with the world He can be trusted with my life and with yours. Third, we come in Christ. We come in Christ. I picture it like this. I stand outside the sanctuary, and God is here at the front. And as I come in, God says, hold it, you can't come in. You're dirty, you're filthy. I love you, but you can't come before me like that and step back out of the sanctuary. What, do I, what should I do? But Jesus is out there too. He says, put this robe on. It's one of mine. And I'll go with you. 
So I enter again, Jesus with me. And this time I approach the throne. And Jesus says, Dad, he's with me. But I bow and say, you need to know that I'm still dirty. This isn't my robe, it's his. And underneath, I'm still covered in filth. And God says, well, all I see is the robe, and it's clean. So you can come and go as you please, but you're welcome here anytime. Hebrews 10 verse 19 says, Therefore, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest, that is Jesus, a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. God has placed us in Christ. So we participate in his death, according to Romans 5. We share in his resurrection. We have become God's children in Christ. As Jesus, Jesus is seated in the heavenly places, then we are too. And as Jesus has made a way for us to enter into God's presence where he is, we have the right, not just we're tolerated, we have the right to stand there too. What is true of Jesus in relationship with God is also true of us. But it's because of Jesus' righteousness. It's his robe that we come. Typically, we make two errors with respect to this. Either we come to God on our own merit, not caring or not realizing that we are dirty. Would you attend a wedding after a shift at the ink factory and then hug the bride in congratulations? Or we stay away entirely, not, real, not realizing or not caring that Jesus has done all we need to do to enter God's presence with confidence. Well, I know the bride and groom invited me and said they really hoped I'd be there, but I don't think they meant it. So I'll just stay home. Either we've held up our end and God will do what we asked, or we think we're too messed up and God wants nothing to do with us, in both of these cases, our attention is focused on ourselves. Both pride and shame are all about me. But if we fix our eyes on Jesus, if he consumes our heart, if we grow in love for him, then we will come to God and we will do so confidently. I often, when I pray say to God, mostly as a reminder to myself, that I come to him in Christ. When I sin and have ignored him, I remind myself that I come in Christ and I don't do anything to prevent me from praying. If I do well and I'm faithful, I come in Christ to remind myself that I have not earned the right to pray. But in prayer, we come in Christ and are welcome. Welcome. And then fourthly, and briefly, because I'm just reminding us of something that we already know, if we pause to think. 
It's not about us. It's not about us. In the movie Aladdin, Aladdin rubs a lamp and a genie appears. The genie needs to grant Aladdin three wishes, and he follows him around until Aladdin asks for his third wish. God is not like that. In prayer, we follow God around. It's not, again, about getting God to do what we want. It's also and especially has to do with our doing what God wants. Because that's what love is. It seeks was in the best interest of the other. But it's not one way, it's two ways. And God decides the nature of our relationship. And that's okay because he's trustworthy. We often think, that, often think of ways that God could serve us rather than the other way around. And we can pray about our needs and wants. That's okay. God wants us to do that. But to pray about ourselves and not necessarily make it about ourselves. That's the difference between asking and demanding. If I ask my wife or my children or friend for something, the relationship is on a much different footing than if I demand something. My relationships are not about me. My relationship with God is not about me. So prayer, too, is not about me. Prayer is relational. Prayer takes an extraordinary amount of trust. In prayer, we come in Christ. In prayer, is not about me. And if we... If we recognize these things, if we remember these things before we step into prayer, then prayer becomes meaningful. Prayer is the point at which God's heart and our heart meet. And when we know these four things, we probably won't pray two or four hours a day, though we might, but our prayers will be meaningful. Our souls will be fed and our depth of relationship with God will grow. And isn't that what prayer is for? Let me pray. Lord, I thank you for these things. I, I thank you that prayer is about relationship. I thank you that it takes trust. I thank you that we come in Christ. I thank you that it's not about us. That, that is very freeing to us. Help us to remember it. Every day, every time we pray, help us to remember these things. And we thank you that you are trustworthy. We thank you that you want to be known by us. We thank you that prayer, you know prayer is not about us because we're weak. And this morning as we pray, as we pray, please help us to pray appropriately. Help us to pray knowing you. In Jesus' name. Amen.